is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. A very good afternoon to you. There's been a population boom in the sheep that are in Australia. We're talking nearly 15 million more sheep in Australia today than were here three years ago. Meat and Livestock Australia has released those numbers today. We'll look through them together. Also happening today is the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. They've released their latest report card on progress of the Basin Plan. And in it, they take very strong aim at New South Wales with some very blunt terminology saying New South Wales are holding the progress of the plan back and also it will not be done in time. You'll hear from their CEO shortly on the program too. And the change at the Bureau of Meteorology to not always having meteorologists on their weather forecasts has been, well, met with silence, according to the Bureau. They've said they've basically had no criticism at all over that. Uh, We'll play some of their appearance at Senate Estimates to you on the program today as well. All of that and a whole lot more. Would love your involvement, 1300 Nine double seven triple two. If you'd like to call, you can text as well zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. Right now, though, let's get some rural news with Emma Field. Emma, g'day, Warwick. Making rural news. Grain harvest in South Australia has just about wrapped up as the state's largest grain handler, Vatera, plans to close off receival sites for the season, making deliveries by appointment only. The company has received over 8.8 million tonnes of grain in the state this year, making it the second largest harvest on record. General Manager of Operations at Viterra, Gavin Kavanagh, says the company is already making sure the big harvest is on the move. We've been exceptionally busy um, ensuring the grain... um goes through the supply chain. We've just shipped over 2 million tonne of grain since we laid our first new season vessel back in October. And that's sort of 52 vessels headed to uh, 22 different countries. Seed from some varieties of lucerne are sold out as farmers prepare to harvest this season's crop. With a lower crop than previous years and strong demand, farmers could be getting close to record prices. The majority of the loosened seed crop is grown in southeast South Australia, and Director of Narracourt Seeds, Josh Rashid, says demand is at an all-time high. We uh, currently uh, have never seen it before sold out of all public loosened varieties. Now, I've been here 11 years now and have never been to the end of the season where we can't offer Aurora or Cy River or any other products. So it's, um, it's uh, haven't seen that before. It's crazy. So some of our varieties, like Magnet, Loosens and aurora and those things we can't offer until we get the harvest, so they have to wait, or we substitute for a different product. Um, but export-wise, they have to literally wait till we get seed off, cleaned and tested so that we can then send it over there. So we can do contracts to sell seed, but we wouldn't be able to sell it or, or ship it until sort of April, May, June this year. So all in all, with you know, no stock, really no carryover, and demand looking to be fairly strong for export and domestic. Looks like prices for loosened seed growers this year will be at record highs, which is great for growers with their production costs, you know, continuing to rise. Hopefully with the OK yields, um, they can actually make some money out of it again, which is good. And despite record floods and widespread rain in the top end this season, not every farm is getting a bit wet. Burdham Creek Station, west of Daly Waters in the Northern Territory, had 90 millimetres in the gauge this week, but there's hope for some more. Caretaker Noel Mitchell says the station's still below average for this wet season. Well, February and March is generally our two wettest months. So we're probably looking 
Australia's National Science Agency, the CSIRO, is unveiling a $25 million upgrade to its cotton research site at Milevale near Narrabri in New South Wales today. The upgrades include a newly built cotton management research laboratory, which allows the precise preemptive monitoring of potential insect resistance and measures crop nutritional status for improved management. New cotton breeding areas, including storage and processing areas, will also be built. And a Tasmanian woodchopping champion is getting in some practice and preparing to defend her national title. Amanda Beams has five world titles and three Australian titles in a highly decorated career so far. And she is currently training at her farm at Exeter in Tasmania, ahead of the Timber Sport Championships in Adelaide in early March. For me... I've, yeah, I'm, I've I've got quite a competitive nature. I've I've got a competitive nature, and I, f- yeah, I feel like that that's something that's probably a little bit outside the normal of what other people would do. Yeah, I just thought I could, I could do that. Yeah, I could do that. So um, you've got to be fairly strong but also have pretty good timing and, and technique. And we seemed to click pretty much straight away. Down the track a bit came the wood chopping with the introduction of um, a women's team at Sydney Show. So once I seen a couple of girls wood chopping there, that was also for me to, to myself, yeah, I, I can do that, I can do that. And that wraps up Rural News. Isn't that someone you want to know? Just help them get some training in get a brand new woodpile as well. Thank you very much for that, Emma Field there with uh, Rural News for you today. Coming up on The Country Hour, you're going to hear from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority who have quite a blunt report card, it must be said, about the state and progress of the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Some of that coming to you soon. But let's start in Canberra with Senate estimates because the Bureau of Meteorology says there's been no negative feedback from introducing less qualified information officers to give radio weather forecasts. In December, it was revealed community information officers would take over some on-air weather reporting currently conducted by meteorologists. This has largely happened in things like uh, breakfast radio crosses around the country in regional areas. The country, as we understand it at the moment, is still uh, presented by meteorologists. But uh, the hard thing was is we didn't know this change had been made and we spoke to ABC directors who said they weren't informed of the change until they uh, until the standard of those uh, broadcasts had dropped. You can read more about that online at ABC Rural. Queensland Senator Susan McDonald asked the Bureau's Director of Meteorology, Dr Andrew Johnson, about this change in Senate estimates last night and he says the Bureau has had no negative feedback. And it was inquiries about the replacement of using meteorologists with... Community information. Community well, actually, information, yes. If I, if I apology to interrupt you, we're not replacing the meteorologists. We're supplementing uh, and augmenting. But just just for the record, no, apologies, no, no, Senator. Thank you yeah. for clarifying that because yeah. you know I, I did have a number of media inquiries yeah. and 
And I thought Dr Stone's point at the time was that that had been going on for three months and nobody had noticed. (laughs) But um, I just want to know if you've been getting any feedback and how that's going. You're correct that there were some initial reactions uh, in the media around the new arrangements. To the best of my knowledge, we've had no um, negative feedback. Uh, uh, Well, no systematic negative feedback. As you know, the public uh, are not short of opinions on on the Bureau Services, Senator. But I I wouldn't recharacterise it as systematic negative feedback or positive feedback. I think um, I've certainly had isolated cases where we've had commentary... um, I won't mention the jurisdiction, but a uh, commentary that the, the, community, the community information officers are providing a clearer enunciation of the weather, and then there are others where folks feel that the meteorologist is providing more depth. So, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of personal taste. Uh, what I can assure you and the Senate and the public is that um, with no degradation to our services, those officers who are providing the service, whether they're a meteorologist or a community information specialists are all appropriately trained, appropriately briefed uh, and uh, expert in their field and um, just given the extreme pressure that the Bureau has been under in recent years with concurrent serious weather over huge parts of the continent, it does an enormous amount to build resilience of our organisation and enable particularly our most expert meteorologists and hydrologists to be at the shoulder of emergency managers when they're making literally life and death decisions around evacuating communities or whatever it might be. So, so it's, an, it's an and, not an or, mm. and, and we think it provides an overall better service to the community uh, than what we've had in the past. That is uh, the Bureau of Meteorology's uh, director, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Bureau as Director of Meteorology, Dr Andrew Johnson, got there eventually, uh, speaking in Parliament House last night at Senate Estimates, saying they haven't had negative feedback. John at Caranbarra says, was it seems strange that I notice when the Bureau speaks to 774, ABC Melbourne, it's usually one of the original meteorologists. But when they speak to ABC Gippsland, it's the new people and a much more general forecast, says John at Caranbarra. Well, John, the Bureau says they're not hearing negative feedback like that. Uh, They were also speaking in Senate estimates last night about the flooding uh, in northern Victoria in areas of New South Wales, well, pretty much in a number of states in Australia over the last few months. Uh, And they admitted a lack of gauges along rivers flowing into the Menindee Lakes region caused problems predicting flood peaks late last year. Homes were inundated and people on properties cut off when authorities failed to predict the large flows that spilled into Menindee Lakes from December to January. Uh, Farmers in the region were critical of authorities and demanded a review. In Senate estimates last night, Perrin Davey, who's a New South Wales national senator, asked the Bureau why there were so many conflicting messages when the region flooded. Obviously, we work closely with colleagues uh, in local councils and in the case of uh, the Menindee area with um, Water New South Wales and the SES to provide the best advice we can. Uh, and I think, Senator, as you would know, predicting flooding in that part of the world, given how flat the landscape is and how dissected the landscape is, is a challenge. Um, some of, some of the uh, more regular updating uh, that we saw in this particular event was because quite a significant volume of water um, was entering and leaving the system through parts of the system that were not gauged. You know, our discussions with colleagues in Northern New South Wales, some, some regular adjustments and assumptions to the amount of water that we thought was moving through the system. And also, as you've referred to, our flood forecasts and warnings are dependent 
on the strategy that Water New South Wales has for releases of water out of, out of impoundments that are within their jurisdiction. Um, one of the learnings from this recent event is, is that that gap in the flood network in the Menindee area requires closure and the New South Wales Government, I think you may well be aware, has announced that they are going to fund an additional 20 gauges in the Menindee area to close off some of those gaps that have existed in parts of the system that were ungaged uh, and, and where um, the absence of gauging was, was um, crucial in an event of this magnitude. So, so that, that gap uh, will be plugged. There's some more of Director of Meteorology, Dr Andrew Johnson from the Bureau of Meteorology speaking in Senate estimates last night. If you're downstream of the Menindee Lakes, I know some of you who listen to our program, would love to hear from you on what you make of that explanation and how that sits with you. You can always call 1300 or text 0467842722. You might want to contact us about this if you are interested in water in particularly northern Victoria and southern New South Wales because the latest report card on the Murray-Darling Basin has shown that there has been barely any improvement in the last six months and important elements of the basin plan won't be done by the 2024 deadline. It was a blunt assessment released this morning by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority uh, of the last six months in the Basin Plan progress, and it was highly critical of New South Wales for holding progress of the plan back by failing to submit required water sharing plans. A very short time ago, I spoke with CEO of the MDBA, uh, uh, Andrew McConville, about the report cut. Yeah, our task is to report transparently on progress. And you know, while we found some minor improvement in some areas, yep, there has been a lack of progress um, in others. So you know, it's important we get that information out there to be able to ensure that people understand there's still more work to be done, absolutely. So what are you saying about the state of the plan and the ability now to hit the 2024 targets? Well, look, I think, you know, there's been some positive progress in New South Wales water resource plans. You know, at the end of December, there were four plans accredited. We've seen, you know, some progress on the supply and constraints measures uh, in terms of projects being underway and completed, but there still is a significant amount of work to be done there. And then also in the Northern Basin, uh, some of the measures as part of the Northern Basin toolkit are running behind schedule. So what we're saying is we've got to keep the shoulder to the wheel because, making progress across all areas is absolutely critical to you know, seeing the basin plan delivered in full work. you got about 16 months before the June 2024 deadline is hit. What is the least likely to be achieved by then? Well, look, I think, you know, we've we've came out last November and, and, and talked about the uh, the Sidland projects and, and that we, we do see that there will uh, be a shortfall there. Um, you know, we won't know exactly what that is until we get to, to 2024 and make that reconciliation. But So these are the projects that the, the states put forward to say, we'll do some work if you reduce correct. the amount of water that is required for the basin yeah, authority. Yeah, that, 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 that's correct. So, you know, it's a bit like getting some water on credit and then and then the projects are the repayment of that. So you know, we, we announced in, in November that we felt that there'd be a a shortfall of somewhere between 190 and 300 gigs and, and, you know, we'll continue to make the assessments as we go forward, keeping in mind that the actual reconciliation doesn't occur until 24. Um, and keeping in mind also, Warwick, you know, we issue these reports every every six months and that transparency is really important. But there are certainly challenges ahead. And as the Minister has said on, on numerous occasions as well, um, you know, the, the achievement of the efficiency measures to cover the 450 gigalitres of extra environmental water, um, you know, that won't be achieved and remains very challenging. 
on the subject of water resource plans, there's there's mm. sort of two separate report grades here, so to speak. One which is very positive for Victoria, Queensland, South Australia and the ACT, saying those plans are done and progress is on track. Mm. For New South Wales, mm. though, this report is highly critical with literally the opposite result in the red for New South Wales on the report card. Why are New South Wales so far behind? Well, it's probably a question better directed to New South Wales, although I would say, you know, as of today... Uh, we have received the the remaining uh, New South Wales water resource plans. Now, New South Wales had the largest sort of component to do most of the heavy lifting. They had 20 of the 33 plans. And, yes, the report was at a point in time in December, and at that stage four had been uh, accredited, and we had received a number of uh, other plans for, for assessment. Uh, as of today, literally today, uh, you know, the New South Wales Minister has announced that the remainder of those plans have, have been uh, submitted for assessment. So, so you, know, you we'll have, have all to, 20 now? We now have all 20 plans, Warwick, and we'll have to go through the very extensive progress process of assessing them, um, you know, against all 55 requirements that water resource plans are assessed against, and that's going to take some time. Convenient timing from New South Wales, isn't it? Oh, look, I won't speculate on that, Warwick. We're very pleased that we've got them and, and you know, our task is now to, to get in and, and, and make that assessment against the requirements. It's a very extensive process. How mm. long do you need to work through those plans before you can accredit them? Will that be done look, by 2024? Uh, look, it, it's a decision ultimately for the Minister to, to accredit them. The, the authority will make recommendations. Look, they, they are significant documents and they do take a considerable amount of time. I really wouldn't want to speculate as to how long that would take, Warwick. Um, you know, it takes as long as it takes, and that's not a cop-out. We, we we just have to be very diligent in the way in which we go about it. Every single water resource plan is assessed against 55 requirements, um, and we have to go through that for, for each and every one. And um, you know, whilst there's a there's a long queue there, there's only so many we can do at any one time. So we'll work very diligently and with an absolute sense of urgency through that. But it's going to take some time. How long? That's a tough question. I probably can't answer. But you know, we'll do it. Uh, and just on the subject of water recovery, which is a lo- what a lot of people see the Murray Darling Basin Plan as, uh, you say you 98% of surface water, 92% of groundwater is recovered. The little bits that you're being held back are, is due to the New South Wales water res- re- water resource plan. So will that be reconciled in the near future? Do you think? Well, look, I mean, the, the important piece with New South Wales or WRPs is it brings the states within the regulatory framework of the Inspector General. Um, and, and until those water resource plans are accredited by the Minister, we sort of have to put in place, um, if you like, different oversight arrangements. So bringing, um, you know, all of the states into the regulatory framework, I think that is uh, incredibly important. In terms of the water recovery task, yeah, there is um, a component of bridging the gap. Now, that's not directly related to New South Wales WRPs. That's a that's across the basin where there are, um, you know, some areas of, of shortfall to uh, recover that water. And then the second component is to look at the 605 gigalitres of supply and constraints and then the 450 of environmental. So you sort of got to view it in those those three boxes, if you like, Warwick. Is this an important document ahead of the ministers, the water ministers from the states and the federal Minister meeting later this month? Oh, look, it certainly helps, Warwick, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is the ninth in the series. We do it every six months. You know, the task of the MDBA is to, you know, be be transparent, you know, ensure accountability and, and really holding the states to and, and the Commonwealth to account for the commitments they've made under the Basin Plan. You know, how they do that is, of course, up to them. But our task is very much about transparently reporting on progress. And so, yes, 
in that regard, having this report, um, you know, available uh, and in the public domain is certainly helping focus the mind on where the work needs to be done. That is CEO of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Andrew McConville, speaking to you. Their relatively new CEO speaking there. Uh, you can let us know what you think by sending a text, 0467 842 just on the issue of meteorologists and when they're meteorologists and not, uh, and the Bureau saying they haven't had negative feedback on that. A few more texts coming in there. This one says this means uh, fewer meteorologists and when we need them during floods, destructive storms and fire times... Uh, we're not going to have them. Uh, short-term loss for long-term, bigger loss, says that anonymous texter. John says here in Sal, we used to get an excellent weather report from the uh, Bureau people on the RAF base. That was stopped and accuracy has dropped. Now it's very diff- general and very difficult to work with as well. You can keep those texts coming, 0467. 842 You might want to talk about the future of glyphosate as well on our text line today because a crop consultant says after a, a tour through Europe and North America, he now believes the important crop growing of a weed killer glyphosate will be banned in Europe within the year. Harm Van Rees travelled through Europe and North America last year to look at what farmers are trying to do to manage reduce reduced access to glyphosate. He says expecting it to be banned in the European Union will make will have big impacts on production to follow in that part of the world and is starting to question what it will mean for Australia. So there's big differences around the world, as we understand. I mean, there's very little pressure in Australia to look at the amount of glyphosate we're using. But, for example, in in Europe, it is highly likely that the product will be banned this year. And that will have huge implications for us as well, because we export grain to the EU, so they've got residue levels. And, I mean, it's time... When there's that amount of pressure on particular chemicals around the world, then we should actually look at what we're doing at home as well. What's that EU ban going to mean? I mean, what are the implications for global food security if if farmers are losing access to glyphosate? Well, exactly. But the EU, it's such a wealthy continent. I mean, they're going to pay higher subsidies to their farmers. So already a significant proportion of farmers' income in the EU is from subsidies and subsidies will increase because I mean, all the farmers we met say they will lose production, but in income-wise, it's probably going to have a much less impact on them. And in Europe, there's still a lot of conventional farming taking place, so it's deep tillage, whereas in Australia, we're 100% well, no-till and min-till. And for us to lose glyphosate would be would be a much bigger impact than it has on Europe. Although most European farmers we met, except for the organic farmers we met, they do not want to use glyphosate because it is such a good product for them. And what's it going to mean, I guess, for Australian production and access to those export markets if we're producing grain with glyphosate in the system? Are we eventually going to lose that access? I haven't got an answer to that because that that remains to be seen. But I can imagine if we put ourselves in the shoes of a European farmer, then they would be very unhappy if it was banned in Europe and they imported grain from jurisdictions around the world, Canada, the US and 
other places where it'd still be able to be used. Is it worthwhile fighting back against moves to ban glyphosate or, or, has, or has the argument already been had and, and now it's about adapting? Well, I think it's a bit of both. Whether we can persuade people in Europe that you know, ultimately voting for particular political systems to change their mind, well, that's unlikely. But in terms of how we treat that particular issue in relation with glyphosate and other farm chemicals, is that I think there are things that we can do just to make sure that our practices are possibly, you know, are as good as they possibly can be. And Australian regulations already are pretty clear on the use of glyphosate, that it is safe to use at the current systems. What would it mean in Australia, in the Australian context, if a glyphosate ban were to be put in place? All the benefits from no-till farming will lose those because there is no alternative to glyphosate. I know that we've got, obviously, we've got other products on the market that we have used in the past and continue to use, but some of those are already banned. For example, Paraquat has already been banned in most jurisdictions around the world, but we still have it. But none of those alternatives will replace glyphosate as it is. So it is going to be having a big impact on our farming system, especially on no-till farming. And we should be thinking about what can we do to replace glyphosate in case it happens. It's not a panic situation, but it's something that we should be thinking about, at least in the short to medium term, to try and address some of the issues that people are going to have in other jurisdictions around the world when it's banned. That's cropping consultant Harm Van Rees speaking there to Angus Verley. You're listening to The Country Hour. Another text here saying, I'm not happy about the bomb's decision to replace meteorologists. Well, the story was the Bureau of Meteorology says they've had not really any negative feedback about that. Maybe, dare I say, you shouldn't be texting me. If you're not happy about it, maybe you should be contacting the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, We've got the full weather report from the Bureau and a meteorologist coming up on the program for you. Before we get there, though, let's head to the regional newsroom with regional news headlines. Is Courtney Howe. Good afternoon, Courtney. Good afternoon, Warwick. Residents of a home in Wodonga have wrestled a gun from a pair of intruders in the early hours of this morning. Police say two people broke through the front door of a home on Garnock Circuit at about half past 12, demanding money. One of the three residents fought back, armed with a kitchen knife. Police believe one of the offenders was cut near the stomach before they fled with cash. A former First Peoples Assembly member is recovering after she was attacked by an unknown man while running in a forest near Ballarat. Jabberung woman Sissy Austin says she was on her regular run through the forest on Saturday afternoon when a stranger emerged and hit her with a rock tied to a stick. The 28-year-old was taken to Ballarat Base Hospital and is now at home recovering from a concussion and bruising. Police believe speed was a factor in a serious crash in the Wimmera last week. On Sunday, a car was travelling along Neil Jeparrett Road in Glenlee when it rolled and came to a rest on its roof. The man was seriously injured and airlifted to hospital, while several children in the car sustained minor injuries. Horsham Inspector Paul Lloyd said it serves as a reminder that locals need to watch their driving behaviour, even if they feel familiar with the roads. 
The Victorian government says there were no applications for youth housing funding in Ballarat, despite a local child and family services organisation expressing disappointment it missed out. Yesterday, $50 million was announced to build more than 130 homes statewide for young people with eight regional locations to benefit, excluding Ballarat and the southwest. CAF CEO Wendy Sturgis urged the housing minister Colin Brooks to consider the Central Highlands for future funding. In a statement, a government spokesperson says it encourages proposals from Ballarat in any future funding process. And the closure of Brad's Commonwealth Bank has been postponed until a Senate inquiry into regional banking is complete. The Commonwealth Bank says it is delaying the already announced closure of its Bright branch as a sign of good faith. And that's the latest in regional news for this afternoon, Was Thanks very much for that. Courtney Howe there with uh, regional news headlines for you today on the program. A uh, lot more texts coming in. Even on glyphosate, Chris in the Mallee says, on glyphosate and possibly banning, environmentally it will wreck crop production in the margins uh, across the world with more erosion and less production. The third world and developing countries will ultimately suffer if glyphosate is banned with higher food costs and less availability. Anyone remember how quickly Germany rolled back standards and oh, organic standards and environmental offsets once Russia went into Ukraine 12 months ago? Western EU is only sustainable by the East carrying it, says Chris in the Mallee, with his thoughts coming in on the text 0467 842 722 if you'd like to send us a text right now, though. Let's head to the Weather Bureau and find out what's happening weather-wise around the state. Michael Efron is a senior forecaster with the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Michael. G'day, Warwick. Uh, looking at the radar, the 516-kilometre composite of Victoria at the moment, there is it's almost like a picture of Victoria. There is barely a speck on it today. Yeah, that's right. Uh, pretty settled uh, conditions across the state with high moving through Bass Strait at the moment. So uh, we do have uh, southeasterly winds and uh, very settled uh, weather. So some patchy cloud across southern parts, but that is um, breaking up. It may hang around a little bit through East Gippsland through the rest of today, but for, for the bulk of the state, um, really uh, settled. And the wind's starting to turn southeastward as well, so it does uh, warm up a bit compared uh, to yesterday. So we're looking at tops around 26 to 31 across the north and in the south around uh, 21 to 25 degrees. So still uh, slightly cooler than average, but um, it is it is starting to warm up and, and certainly warming up on Wednesday, uh, with that high moving further east, we go into a, a northerly airstream. So we'll see temperatures into the low to mid-30s across the north, uh, high 20s to low 30s in the south. Some morning fog in the south and east as well. Then a, a sunny day, apart from some patchy high clouds uh, at times. And uh, those northerly winds won't be strong enough to um, prevent some sea breezes. So they will develop along the coast uh, throughout the afternoon. And then so how hot does it get on Wednesday? Yeah, so at Mildura, 36, Swan Hill, uh, 35, uh, Echuca, 33. So not too warm on, on Wednesday, especially uh, for those parts. But uh, Thursday, we do see uh, temperatures touching 40 degrees uh, through the northwest. So Mildura up to 40, Swan Hill, 39, Horsham, 38, uh, same at Echuca, Seymour, 37. And in the northeast, still not quite as hot. Uh, Wangaratta 36, 
Albury Wodonga 34. And then in the south, pretty warm as well. So Hamilton 37, uh, Ballarat 34, uh, also 34 at Sale, 32 at Bansdale. So another uh, sunny day, apart from some quite clouds at times. But I think in the far southwest of the state, we could see a late shower of thunderstorms there, but I don't think we'll see too much rainfall out of that. And those northerly winds on Thursday won't be uh, too strong either. But on Friday, we do see uh, the next change moving. Light to moderate northerly winds. They may be fresh at times in the south during the mornings as well. And those temperatures uh, a little bit warmer as well, 41 at Mildura, uh, 40 at Swan Hill, 37 at Horsham. Uh, elsewhere into the northeast, uh, we're looking at 35 at Aubrey Wodonga, 37 at Wangaratta, Seymour, 37. And then uh, into Gippsland, pretty hot as well, 36 for sale. But through the southwest, with that change arriving a bit earlier, uh, Warnable expecting 26. So some difference there. And we will see some shower and storm activity over central and eastern districts just ahead of that trough, but again, not looking at uh, too much rainfall out of that. So Friday night into Saturday, we do see that change moving slowly east, and by Saturday afternoon, that change should have cleared uh, most of the state. But on Saturday afternoon, I think we will see some showers and storms again over uh, eastern parts, uh, most likely about the ranges. In terms of temperatures in the south back to uh, the low to mid-20s and across the north high 20s uh, to low 30s. And then for Sunday and Monday, pretty settled conditions with the, the high-pressure ridge extending across southern parts of the state. So we're looking at partly cloudy skies in the south, sunny across the north, uh, temperatures in the south in the mid-20s and high 20s to low 30s um, across the north. So we do get a run of pretty hot days, but... Uh, very little rainfall expected over the next week. And just on that rainfall, there is a, a hopeful text, I suppose, on the line right now. Michael saying, hi, was, uh, can you ask the bomb if there will be any rain in the centre of Victoria in the future? Just leaving it nice and vague <laughs> for you there. But what, what is there likelihood for any rain for, for central Victoria? Yeah, nothing significant um, in, in the next week. So I think Friday afternoon maybe some storms around but it's very localised activity and, and even then not uh, too much and then beyond that there's there's no sign really of any um, tropical moisture coming down or, or any strong cold fronts either so I think um, into the middle part of next week we, we start warming up again so yeah no signs anything uh, significant in the outlook. The La Nina fronts may be over. We could be an interesting time for a few months ahead. But, Michael, thank you very much for the update. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, Warwick. Michael Efron, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast there. Up next, we're going to look at some incredible numbers on the amount of sheep in Australia. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. If you're a sheep producer, I'd love to know what you make of this. 1300 if you want to call. Uh, sheep numbers in Australia are about to hit a 16-year high as better weather and genetics result in a massive flock rebuild. In numbers from Red Meat Research and Development Organisation, Meat and Livestock Australia, the Australian sheep flock is set to hit 78 
1.75 million head in 2023. Senior Market Information Analyst Ripley Atkinson says that will mean nearly 15 million more sheep in Australia today than just three years ago. The projections we've released today for sheep are really optimistic and, and the outlook's quite positive. So we've got the flock forecast to grow to its highest level since 2007 and as a result of that, we are forecasting record land production and exports to eventuate this year as well. 78.75 million head of sheep in Australia. How much higher is that than, than the lowest over the last uh, decade or so? How low did the flock get? Yeah, so in 2020, following the drought, the flock got to 64 million. So we've grown by nearly 15 million within the space of, of four years. That's an Three incredibly years. quick turnaround. Yeah, and we've also got to remember three La Ninas. Now, that, that doesn't directly um, affect overall performance, but it's the first time or the third time in 50 years we've had three consecutive La Ninas. We had a really strongly correlated negative IOD last year, which supported that improved winter-dominant rainfall for, for Australia's sheep-producing regions as well. So there's a lot of those factors, as well as water and grass availability, which are underpinning it too. When you look at the map of Australia, are there areas where sheep are growing faster than others? We know the last two years particularly, the key states of New South Wales and Victoria have done a lot of the heavy lifting. But this year we are expecting other states such as Queensland or the other states, Queensland, South Australia, Tassie and Western Australia to contribute and grow more substantially. New South Wales and Victoria, as I mentioned, have, have driven the rebuild into growth and now we expect those improvements to continue to come more substantially from the other states. So what's behind this? Is it weather or is it price? Weather is the key driver, um, you know, of, of how the the market's performed and how we've seen that really strong improvement in numbers. And what weather has done for Australian sheep producers is, is given those optimal conditions for reproductive performance for those females. You know, th there was a lot of ewe lambs joined um, and that continues to be every year. A lot of ewe lambs joined. The um, availability of grass and water supports better marking rates, which is giving us larger lamb crops. And then, you know, also beyond that, that, that medium-term confidence promoted by price is incentivising producers to grow their numbers to capitalise on, on where the market sits and then obviously as well that international demand. Was the growth here in the meat sheep side of the industry or the wool sheep side of the industry? We know through the October wave of the uh, sheep producer intention survey or merino genetics account for 70% of Australia's breeding ewe flock. So they're still the vast majority of where Th that increase in numbers will come from, but we have seen increases and, and the survey's data is telling us that, not necessarily projections, that we are seeing increases in first cross pure meat breeds, shedding breeds and dual purpose as well. So the growth obviously is is widespread and it's across all, all different breeds. And then that comes down to, to the, the slaughter of sheep as well. Has that slowed as the flock rebuild has been on? It has, yes. It did slow, particularly in 2020 into 2021. We saw improvements last year, particularly in lamb slaughter, and then into 2023 in our forecast moving forwards, we're expecting record lamb slaughter for 2024 as well. 
So uh, sheep will start returning through the through the markets through the abattoirs as the flock gets to this larger size. Yeah, yeah, definitely for both for both mutton and lamb. So we're expecting a twenty four percent increase in uh, mutton slaughter this year as those producers have the luxury of turning off non-performing females or, or cast for age um, use as well. So we're going to see an uptick in, in mutton slaughter and then the lamb slaughter because of those uh, fundamentals I spoke about earlier, delivering a larger lamb drop, we're going to see an increase to the fourth highest lamb slaughter on record in 2023 as well. So it sounds like there's going to be a lot happening in the sheep industry so forth. Will that put pressure on prices if the slaughter numbers are going to be so high? The, the the situation um, occurring at the minute, when you look at prices year on year um, across most categories bar mutton, are actually performing relatively relatively firm and they're still operating in line with the five-year average. In terms of what that looks like for the next 12 months, um, we don't know. We don't know what that means, but the international demand and the international space does play a role in how domestic lamb and mutton prices perform and there are strong indicators of improved demand as a result of a number of different factors which do point to supporting our domestic um, lamb and mutton prices. And I suppose then that just takes me to looking forward and as you mentioned three La Nina years which are particularly uh, important on the east coast uh, and into the, the rebuilding of these flock numbers after the, the awful droughts of the, of the late 2010s. I suppose how much pressure does this flock size come under if the, the weather turns off, if the rain turns off this season? We do expect the flock size to decline in 2025 to 78.5 million head, which will still sit at about where we're forecasting it to reach this year. And it'll still remain... 13% above the 10-year average in 2025. So we are expecting a decline in the flock size moving forwards. And, yes, it, it is going to happen. The flock will come under pressure simply because of seasonal conditions and the way that the, the, the weather cycle works. But we do expect these numbers uh, for the next three years anyway to remain elevated against long-term averages before that softening or falling in numbers. Well, Ripley Atkinson, thank you very much for joining us on The Country Thank you very much for having me. That's Ripley Atkinson, a senior market information analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia. And as you heard, predicting the sheep flock to get to 78.75 million head in 2023, a 16-year high, and meaning there'll be 15 more sheep in Australia this year than there were three years ago. An extraordinary rebuild to the herd and the herd numbers there. I've been asking you what you make of that. 0467-842-722 if you'd like to send us a text. A couple of you have. This one says who's going to shear all of these sheep? Necessity is the mother of invention. It is a really interesting question. We've talked about pressure on the shearing industry and difficulty in getting shearers on this very program over the last couple of years with so many extra sheep. That might be uh, something worth watching um, very closely. And this one says, uh, G'day Warwick, does the influx of sheep in Australia mean the prices of meat will be lower, not only in the yards, but also in the supermarkets, says Anthony in Coleraine. And Anthony, 
Great question. I did try and get at that a little bit with Meat and Livestock Australia spokesperson there, Ripley Atkinson, not really wanting to put too much on the line. And if you're looking at what's happening at the RBA uh, governor at the moment with predictions, you'd see why many people in that game are, are probably hesitant to make predictions at the moment. But uh, it will be one for us to follow. We have seen sheep prices. We have seen a lot of meat prices in 2023 come off already. The goat price has fallen off a cliff. Uh, sheep price is also very low. Mutton price in particular very low at the moment, well, compared to where it was. It will be something worth watching this year with the larger sheep flock and with predictions of a record kill. We'll have to watch his space from here, but very good questions. And when you say not only at the yards, but also in the supermarkets, well, I won't make predictions for you there, but it is one we should follow up closely to see if the supermarket price follows falls at the sale yards as well. We'll have to do that, won't we? On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. Uh, Robert from Hamilton says, just train shearers to shear faster. Mine are good, shearing 300 ewes a day, but some do over 500 with very good training. Robin, very keen. I like that. Thank you very much for providing that today as well. And look, if you've checked the calendar today or if you were reminded about it this morning with a card on your pillow like I was uh It's Valentine's Day today. And a good thing about Valentine's Day is that it coincides with the time of year for flower farms having their produce in full bloom. So you're not short on flowers being grown in Victoria right now. In the northeast of Victoria, there's been an increase in micro flower farms established during the pandemic. So what's led these budding farmers to go towards flowers? And how did they turn hobbies into commercial businesses? Are they managing to survive? Chilton couple Sarah Hills and Tim Smith officially opened their pick-your-own farm called Pepper's Run in December. And in the lead-up to Valentine's Day, they told Annie Brown just how they got into something they love. Yes, we're in uh, Pepper's Run, just about a K out of Chilton, just on the edge of the Chilton Mount Pilot National Park on the way to Howlong. About 15 acres, so a little hobby, hobby farm, as we would be described by the farmers, um, in a little run-down 1940s miners cottage and um, we've been here for two and a half years yeah about two and a half years peppers run tell us a bit about what this farm or who this farm is named after yeah so the farm is named after pepper our little cattle dog um so we uh adopted her through dunroman pet rescue i think two about two weeks after we moved in here (laughs) Tim said, yeah, we can get a dog. And I said, okay, well, I found one. We're picking her up on Saturday. Yeah, so Pepper has just been a real sort of joy and light in our lives ever since we got her. All right, well, take me back to the beginning. How did Pepper's run begin? I was working in a desk job that I was feeling really unfulfilling. And during COVID, it was particularly isolating, working remotely at home on the computer all day, every day. Um, And I was thinking I wanted to do something that was outdoors, something that would connect me with people um, in the community and sort of the area more generally. And yeah, we had a a little patch of flowers that was growing near our veggie garden. And I got into the habit of taking people bunches of flowers, whether it was friends or family or, um, you know, even into my Pilates studio in Albury. Um, And yeah, just sort of, noticing how much joy it gave people when they would get a bunch of flowers and um, how much people like to chat over flowers you know whether it's memories or things that their mum grew or their grandma grew and yeah I just thought well why not do this on a larger scale. 
So uh, we grow something like 28 varieties, a lot of sunflowers, dahlias, zinnias, cosmos, um, all the really happy summery flowers that just love the heat um, that go really well in this region. How did you go from transitioning it though from a hobby into yeah a commercial farm like this? Yeah, um, so I did the I took the NICE course, which is like the government new enterprise incentive scheme course. So they they give you funding for three months to do um, a cert three, I think, in in micro business management. Um, and then if you you submit a business plan at the end of the course, and then if you're approved, um, you go on to nine months of funding. So that really helped to kind of get us through the the winter and the difficult period before we could actually start planting and selling pl- uh, flowers. Do you sell to florists or anything like that yet? No, not selling to florists at this point. We're really focusing on the pick your own and um, working on developing that so that it's um, you know, good for locals and tourists and anyone who wants to come. And I guess what kind of people come to the farm? We've had a lot of young families, um, lots of mums bringing their, their sort of under school age kids, couples coming for a little bit of a date night and grandparents bringing grand, grandchildren as well. It's been really big with the kids, yeah. What would be some of your tips or advice that you'd give to budding flower growers who might want to get into flower farming? Um, get on top of your weeds <laughs> have a good weed management system in place go into it with a plan start small start smaller than you think and small in terms of the amount of space you're growing on and small in terms of the amount of variety i, I think if we had our time again we would probably have less variety and um, oh, maybe not less space but there was probably times when the amount of space that we were trying to farm which is tiny was still a little bit overwhelming um, especially through the wet periods especially through you know the first flush of weeds coming through uh, not, not only ask for help but accept help yeah. we were kind of doing it solo and we still are doing it solo but we definitely lean on help of um, other people locally who do it we borrowed the rotary hoe from Bernie at Mamaji Basin Produce and if you didn't ask for that help and wanted to buy it yourself, there's 15 grand. So, you know, start small, ask for help, ask to borrow equipment because, yeah, it's, it's going to help you in the long run. And build those relationships is going to help you in the long run too. It's very romantic out here. What if you get some proposals on Valentine's Day? Have you thought about this? Yes, I actually have. I'm not even going to lie. Because we had a couple out here um, the other night and they had this beautiful picnic set up and, um, you know, the sun was setting, the light was so beautiful and I thought, oh my gosh, what if they propose? Wouldn't that be great? So I'm, I'm definitely on hand. I can hold the camera. We can do like a hidden surprise one. I'm so keen. Oh yeah. I'm all about it. Yes. 100% on board. So if you're if you're looking to propose to your partner this Valentine's Day, please come. We will do everything in our power to make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> I would love that. Oh, looking for love. Sarah Heels and Tim Smith from Pepper's Run Flower Farm in Chilton speaking to Annie Brown. And if you're going out there, no pressure. Okay, don't, don't worry about that. Uh, you're listening to The Country Hour. Let's head to uh, markets now. To market to market, we'll go to Ballarat sheep and lambs because apparently there's 15 million more sheep in the country by the end of this year compared to three years ago. We'll find out how they're selling with Shiona Lamb. Hi, Shiona. Good afternoon. Lamb supply remains similar with 25,000 drawn for quality varied throughout the yarding. 
quality dropped away in the trade weights and lighter lands, and prices reflected this as buyers were selective when bidding. Light trade sold to 12 cheaper and to $20 a head in places. Medium trade were to 10 softer. Heavy trade sold firm for the better quality, well-finished lambs, and the secondary type sold to 10 cheaper. Heavy export lambs sold to a top of two. 288 holding firm again for the well-finished lambs off feed and to $10 a head cheaper for the secondary types. Store buyers were active but selective when bidding. White lambs back to the paddock under 18 kilos selling 47 to 138 to be $7 a head cheaper. Lambs to feed on over 18 kilos sold 128 to $178 a head. Lambs to the trade to suit MK orders under 18 kilos sold 121 to $126 a head to be back $8. There is still one agent to sell lambs and 18,000 sheep to be sold. This is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Shiona. Let's head to Wodonga now for the cattle market report. There is Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. Just over 1,200 cattle sold to the usual processes, along with a few more feeder orders at the sale. Quality improved with some very good lines of feeder cattle this week, giving buyers an opportunity to make a start. Trade cattle were limited and there were only 500 cows penned. Veal slipped 30 cents, quality related, 3.20 to 4.20. Trade steers, only a few to quote, 3.40 to 4.28. Trade heifers were back 15, with most selling to feedlots, 3.20 to 3.55. Feeder heifers were firm, 3.20 to 3.94. Feeder stairs also firm, 3.38 to 4.34. Heavy feeder steers, 500 to 600 kilo, 3.44 to 3.76. Heavy steers, 380 to 410, jumping 30 cents. Bullocks, 362 to 385, they were 25 cents dearer. And cows were firm, 290 to 312 for the heavy types. Leaner cows, 249 to 272. Yeah, ducks MLA. Thanks very much for that, Leanne. Lucky last today is Nicole Varley at the Shepparton Cattle Market. Hi, Nicole. Hello, Warwick. Well, today we had our numbers lifted here at Shepparton. We had 965 exports and 275 trade cattle with the larger showing of the heavy cattle this, this sale. Quality offering improved with some excellent runs of heavy, well-covered beef cows that attracted a stronger field of buyers. While growing steers and bullocks like the spirit of last week, trade cattle, although very limited in numbers, had fewer dairy cross types and a handful more bee-muscled vealers, although processes still remained very subdued. Feedlotters and restockers chipped away, which helped buffer prices. Best of the vealers, 372 to 448. Very few yearling steers here this week. They made from 340 to 365. The yearling, sorry, from 332 to 363. Yearling heifer portion, 340 to 365. The best of the feeder steers went to, uh, made up to 415. The growing steers and bullocks, 340 to 360 cents. Heavy Frisian bullocks topped at 330. And the heavy beef cows sold at dearer markets there, 250 to 320, averaging around 297. Dairy portion, 230 to 275. This is Nicole Varley from Shepparton. Thank you very much for that, Nicole. Nicole Varley there with the Shepparton Cattle Market Report. And this has been Work Along with the Country Hour for you today. Thank you very much for joining us. Remember, you can listen back to the program, but also you can... Listen to our rural reports in the morning as well, quarter past six on your local radio station. I'll be back with you at midday. I hope you have a great afternoon and we'll catch up with you then.